The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In November of 1863, U.S. President Abraham Lincoln traveled by train from Washington, D.C. to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. A civil war was tearing the country apart. This was two and a half years into what would eventually last just over four. The purpose of his trip was to visit a former battlefield that was now being opened as a cemetery, commemorating the lives of the soldiers who had died in battle. Abraham Lincoln felt weak and dizzy. Onlookers noted how sad and haggard he looked. Lincoln was a thoughtful, gentle man, quietly eloquent, a prairie lawyer and storyteller, who had nevertheless been a wartime president almost from day one of his administration. He bore the weight of being president of a country divided in half and warring with one another over the issue of slavery, which Lincoln had come to view as America's original sin for which the current bloodshed was paying. And he had other reasons for heaviness. He had known personal grief in his life. His second son had died when he was only four of tuberculosis, and Lincoln's third son, Willie, had died in the White House just a year before, struck down by fever. Now his youngest son, Tad, lay ill in Washington, so much so that Lincoln's wife, Mary, begged him not to go. And as he made the trip to Gettysburg, Lincoln himself most likely had smallpox, the COVID of his day. He nevertheless composed and delivered one of the greatest speeches in the history of the English language. Lincoln was not the featured speaker that day. A man named Edward Everett was the prime attraction, and he was no slouch in the oratory department. He delivered a long speech from memory. In those days, this was expected and appreciated. There was no radio or television, and there were few books. On an occasion such as this one, the public appreciated hearing the narrative of what had happened, how this event fit into history, both of the war and the country. Everett spoke for two hours. Lincoln, meanwhile, suffering that day from dizziness and headache, limited his remarks to less than ten minutes. 272 words to Everett's 13,607. And yet, it was the Salieri and Everett who acknowledged the triumph of Lincoln's Mozartian performance. In a letter to Lincoln written on the following day, Everett said, Permit me to express my great admiration of the thoughts expressed by you with such eloquent simplicity and appropriateness at the consecration of the cemetery. I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Two minutes that boiled down the American experiment into a timeless piece of writing, looking back, looking ahead, and looking deeply within. The Gettysburg Address, today on The History of Literature.
Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Happy belated President's Day for those of you here in the United States. If you're not American, that's okay. This is a worthwhile speech for any nation or any citizen of the world. If you care about democracy, if you love it or hate it, well, who hates it? How many people hate it, do they, outside of maybe some dictators or their families? Who hates democracy? But that doesn't mean everyone wants to plunge in or that it's some kind of universal truth or even a universal good like motherhood or sunsets. If you love democracy but fear it or hate it in practice but admire it in theory, wherever you stand on it, maybe you're a little bit wary, a little bit cautious, a little bit frustrated by it sometimes, wherever you stand on it, it's a fascinating topic. And politics and power are fascinating topics. And good speeches, good rhetoric are worth our time to see how language and rhetorical devices work when they are at their best. How many political speeches are more than just functional hooey, drab natterings from stuffed suits? Well, this one, look, this one, this one is more like literature. This one works like the most incisive parts of Shakespeare or the King James Bible. And by incisive, I mean penetrating and clear, getting to the heart of things. And incisive meaning words chosen so well, they cut through the air like knives. This one goes from ink on paper straight to engraved marble. These are words that cross boundaries, geographical and chronological. How many speeches are there like this? How many bits of political prose can we say this about? Well, Winston Churchill comes to mind, Martin Luther King Jr., certainly, Nelson Mandela, Vaclav Havel, Pericles, FDR, there are some, Thomas Paine maybe. There are some political speeches or tracts, pamphlets, positions that we revere and for good reason. Political junkies will have their lists, but fans of literature, there just isn't that much that makes that step from competent political oratory to graceful literary genius. This is one of those. Pound for pound, word for word, the Gettysburg Address is hard to beat. America's gospel, Tom Brokaw, the newsman, used to say, that's pretty accurate, the secular version of a New Testament, a new covenant, a new promise. In Lincoln's phrase, a new birth of freedom. It's famous in America. It's famous all over the world and for good reason. So here's what we'll do today. We're going to look at who Lincoln was at the time he wrote the Gettysburg Address, what he was facing and what the stakes were, what the context was for the crafting and delivery of this speech. We're going to look at the text itself, of course. Ten sentences. That's all it is. Why are they so enduring? What was Lincoln trying to accomplish, and which words did he choose, and why? Where did those words come from? What did they mean? And I'm going to sandwich these thoughts on the Gettysburg Address with a couple of personal stories, or one anyway, that will help, hopefully, to give us some larger thoughts, some context for why this document matters even today. My ancestors were not Americans when this was written. In a way, I have 
no dog in this fight. And yet, as someone who was born here and who believes in America, it is my fight. I have a dog and it is engaged in a fight. So we'll talk about that. But mostly we're going to stick to literature and history and not contemporary politics, except to the extent that the great American spirit... (laughs) Boy! (laughs) Too many X's. Except to the extent that the great American experiment, which the Gettysburg Address crystallizes is still ongoing. So, that's our feast today. A dense one, full of protein. But before we get to our main course, we need to thank one of our number one countries. We skipped this last time. Here's a reminder of where we are. We received a set of charts full of what Apple and the good folks at Chartable have measured for books-related podcasts around the world. To my great pleasure, and somewhat to my surprise... This humble little podcast has hit number one in several countries over the past few years, so we are thanking them one by one. We have thanked so far, quick list, Croatia, Norway, the Bahamas, Lithuania, Algeria, Bahrain, Uganda, and Iceland. We gently encouraged my beloved Italy to get on the stick. We got stuck at number two there for a while. Moviti, my Italian friends, Amici, (laughs) just kidding. Number two is still very flattering and humbling. That is also where we peaked in Greece and Mongolia. So you're in good company, Italy. But let's stick to the number ones and travel to South America. Do we have a drum roll? The number one country we are thinking today is Chile. Yes, Chile, ah yes, that strip of paradise on the left edge of the continent. After I traveled around for a while, when I was younger, I decided that my favorite geological position was to have mountains at my back and the sea in front of me. Right now, I have neither one. I have a basement studio that looks onto a yard and a road, which makes the Longing for sea air and cool mountain majesty all the more pronounced. So, Chile, I would like to visit you soon. I've never been there, unless you count the mental journeys I've taken via some great Chilean poets and novelists. Thank you very much to all my literature-loving friends in that wonderful country. Okay, time to indulge me. A story, speaking of traveling, by the way, I have a story about channeling a bit of Lincoln without really knowing that that was what I was doing. And then the ten immortal sentences of the Gettysburg Address after this. grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We are back, and we are getting closer to our look at Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address. Here's the great secret about the Gettysburg Address, or it's not such a secret, but here's the key. It's about America. It's a framing. It's a framing of what America has been and is and can be. This isn't what we always think about when we're here. That kind of thinking is so tied to the local and the Cliche. It's abused, really. Americans like big trucks, we say. Well, what does that mean? What does that matter? Americans are obese. Really? Is that who we are as people? Or we say Americans overpay for health care. Well, sure, maybe that's true, and maybe we have to fix that or address it. But it's a problem for politicians to, to tackle this year, this election cycle. If we're arguing about that today and Again, 20 years from now and 100 years from now. Let's just say there's history and there's current events. When I'm here, I'm like most people stuck in the world of current events. How do we respond to COVID? Too much masking? Too little? Is the vaccine approved? Is it working? Where do we get the shots? It's easy. Is it easy to get to the, the place where we get the shots? Is the rollout good? Are we safe? Are our kids safe? Are we overdoing it? All that. All that. It's intensely local, even one might say mundane, though the stakes are high. It's not so grand. It's day to day. It's getting through. I don't have time to think about the Declaration of Independence when I'm filling out my taxes or voting for my school board member. Things are different when I'm traveling abroad. I've told a few stories from that period. I spent three out of four years living abroad in my early 20s, a year in Italy, traveling through Europe and Africa, then a year back in Chicago to finish school, and then it was as if I was shot out of a cannon, two years working in Taiwan and backpacking through Asia, Africa, and Europe again, living on a few bucks a day, and a lot of hostels, a lot of long bus rides, a lot of cheap meals, a lot of guest houses, meeting a lot of people. Other travelers, people who were traveling like me, staying in tents or huts or wherever we were, on the beach, on the train, gathering to eat and exchange news of the road ahead and the road behind. 
Ideally, you'd meet someone who was traveling in the opposite direction as you, with fresh information about a place they'd just left, and one where you were headed next. I'm sure it's a little bit easier now. Just read the blogs. The information is everywhere. For us, it was like being handed secrets. Fresh secrets. Even the invaluable Lonely Planet guides couldn't be as current as the traveler who had just left a place. Give you advice like, yes, this place is open, it's good, or don't eat there, it's filthy, or don't waste your time. That place is booked solid for a week. And so we gathered at these tables and got to know one another. People passed along handmade maps, wrote down phone numbers, addresses, directions, ideas, thoughts, Canadians and Japanese and Americans and Mexicans and Europeans of all stripes, Australians, sometimes other countries too. Every night was different. Every night the conversation roamed around, touched on different topics, and the personalities made it different every night. Sometimes it was funny. Sometimes it was serious. Sometimes it was dull. Sometimes it was aggressive. I was something of a target in those days, I suppose. As an American, the Cold War had ended and the United States had won. The sole superpower left. And in some quarters, that made me a bit of a celebrity. And in other quarters, it made me a bit of a focal point, more so than I felt comfortable with. I wasn't the one who put a military base in your country, my friend. But I had to acknowledge that they were there. That it was my country who had put them there. I couldn't really defend it. But I sort of thought or hoped that America was doing some good. World War II was not that far behind us, and we seemed like we had been one of the good guys there. And I hoped that our wealth and presence in the world also did all, or at least some of the good things that we hoped that it did. I knew it probably didn't live up to that, not all the time. I knew we toppled regimes and cozied up to dictators and so on. I wasn't naive, but I also thought that a lot of Americans believed in democracy and supported it in a lot, lot of places. We helped as well as hurt, and hopefully the balance weighed more favorably on the side of the former than the latter. So, one night in Perugia, Italy, I was with a bunch of fellow travelers, and I was attacked pretty viciously by a man from New Zealand, attacked rhetorically. He hated America. He resented us for our cultural influence. He had a particular hatred of prom. In America, everything is about prom. He said, choosing a prom king and queen, it's disgusting and ridiculous, that kind of thing. I said prom had not been a large part of my life, and I didn't know that high schools in America were really all that different from high schools elsewhere in the world in terms of teenagers vying for popularity and trying to fit in. And maybe his view of America came from Hollywood and television shows that I wasn't really watching. I didn't really know what to tell him. I had no idea why New Zealand was broadcasting or watching American entertainment. I suppose America had bigger budgets and somehow that's how it ended up on their TV or ended up in in his mind. I can remember another man was there too, a British soldier who had been in Northern Ireland. 
on the lines between Catholics and Protestants. This was just before, or I guess just after the ceasefire. That's why he was on this holiday, after having been in danger for several months, potentially being shot at was his concern. Our waitress that night was a Japanese woman who was there studying opera in Italy. I remember that. And I remember thinking, I really wish this guy would, this New Zealander, <laughs> would just drop the subject. It feels like he's been waiting for years to meet an American to unload all this anger. And I would rather we talked about Assisi or Naples or wherever else people were coming from or headed but I had gotten used to answering questions about America in those years. It felt like being a New Yorker in some ways. In Chicago, they think about New York. In Los Angeles, they think about New York. Boston, it's New York. Every city, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, everywhere. The city that you compare yourself with is New York. And in New York, they just don't really think that much about every other city. How could they? You won't catch New Yorkers wondering how they do things in Minneapolis or Phoenix. And New Zealand was not a place I knew much about, though I accepted that America's military and cultural footprint was likely a heavy one, and if I were in his position, I might resent the influence of America too. But then the conversation turned to where he was talking about America internally, and here's where I thought he overstepped a bit. He'd never been to America, and his description of it seemed a bit fatuous to me. America doesn't take care of its poor people like we do in New Zealand, he said. It doesn't treat women equally like we do, and it's supposed to be this great melting pot, and yet it's got inequality everywhere, and I said something about multiculturalism or plurality being hard, a work in progress, and I suggested that there was a degree of difficulty in America. Maybe, I suggested, it was a bit harder to pull together a bunch of different groups, different religions, different races, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. Maybe it was a little bit harder than what they had experienced in New Zealand. People have an instinct to help locally. The people they know, the people who look like them, it was hard to get them to be broad-minded about helping people outside of of those that they viewed as their tribe, and so on. And here his face lit up as if he had been waiting for me to say that. But we've done it, he cried. We've created that society. And he cited the treatment of the Maori as evidence that the problem was not as hard as I was making it sound. Now, I can't remember exactly what I said in response. I have a journal somewhere that I probably recorded more of the conversation. I'm pretty sure I asked him how many people we were talking about. And it was under a million. Which, it's great that it has happened, for sure. If it is, if the relations between the white New Zealanders and the Maori are as, as if it was has been as well done as he described... No shade on New Zealand for doing the right thing. And if everything there is working out, that's wonderful. We can no doubt learn from them. But I mean, America, America, the United States, even now, with anti-immigration forces at their strongest in decades, 
It still has more than a million immigrants a year. A million a year. If the population was static and small, 700,000 Maori seems small to me by comparison. If, if, it, if we had a small and static population like that and we had decades to figure it out, then great. Let's do it. Let's solve the problem and live together. Not that we've done it in America, but the degree of difficulty just seems astronomically higher. We don't have just one group trying to get along with one other group. We have a hundred groups jostling for position, different cultures, different languages, different histories, different skin colors, different religions, everyone arriving with fresh hopes and also fresh prejudices. We're not unique. I think India has a, an incredible task stitching millions of people together into one tapestry too. But to add new flavors to the soup every single year and to try to keep it all together, to treat everyone fairly and see everyone prosper, to guarantee opportunity to everyone, it's not easy. And admittedly, America has failed hugely. And there's no more glaring failures than the Native Americans or the treatment of slaves and former slaves and black people since then. America has two periods, really. Until the Civil War, there was the period of leave me alone and let me own slaves. And since then, there's been the period of leave me alone and let me be racist. And we cannot seem to get beyond that. It gets better over time, maybe. But it's two steps forward and three steps back sometimes. So that was my point. America's not perfect. But where's the country that's attempting something like this? And don't tell me New Zealand is, my friend, because it has six million people total, which is like an American city. We, we, the scale is just not the same. Back then, I, I think New Zealand did not even have four million people. And again, it's great if they've solved problems. But it's not really on the same scale. We could point to a single state that solved problems. Our ethnic groups are, are 40 million people, 60 million people spread out across a country the size of a continent, but also clustered in cities that are as large as all of New Zealand. And for those of us born in the late 20th or now the 21st century, the deck is already stacked against us. The country started with genocide and slavery and racism has been here forever. It gets handed down generation after generation and it gets inflamed. It lies dormant and it's ready to be inflamed. Resentment and ignorance and hatred, all of it is already there when we're born. It's not like my generation got to start with a clean slate. The laws had changed by the time I was born, thankfully. But bigotry was alive and well. Grandfather to father to son. Anyway, I must have been holding forth for a while. I honestly don't remember the details of what I was saying. But I'll never forget what happened when we left. It was still contentious when we left, and I walked back to the hostel with the British soldier. And he looked at me, shaking his head slowly, and I said, sorry, sorry, that got a little heated or, or not much fun to talk about politics or something like that. And he just shook his head and he said, my God, 
If you guys can't pull this off, maybe it can't be done. I think that, that I think is the right spirit with which to approach Lincoln in the Civil War as he approached the battlefield, now the cemetery of Gettysburg. That's the question that runs through all of those 272 words of the Gettysburg Address. It's Lincoln saying, if we can't pull this off, maybe it can't be done. And we have this enormous degree of difficulty to go from slavery so entrenched as an institution, white supremacy so entrenched in the minds of slaveholders and their supporters, centuries of perverted thinking that distorted the views made people think that a Christian God had willed this to be. It was the natural order, thinking that had blinded people to the plain realities, the self-evident morality. I mean, all credit to Lincoln for his logical reasoning. And there were a few complexities about the federal system and court rulings and so on that required his lawyer's brain to kick in. But to say that slavery is wrong doesn't take an Einstein. It's right there in Do Unto Others, the golden rule. It's only because the logic got so snarled by the people trying to justify slavery that it took such a galaxy brain to untangle it. I might have just mangled my own point there. What I'm saying is that people had worked so hard to justify slavery that they had developed all these arcane arguments that would let them live with it as an institution and live with themselves and still believe that they and their compatriots were not monstrous racists and monstrous human beings. And the people who tried to say otherwise, the people who stated the simple truths, had to fear for their lives. It was bullets over logic at that point. Lincoln was elected president. The South immediately made plans to secede before he took office. On his way to Washington from Illinois, there was an assassination attempt, and he had to enter D.C. in disguise. They weren't there to persuade him that slavery was right. Bizarro world arguments don't work on someone as devoted to evidence and justice and the truth as Lincoln. So they thought they'd better kill him instead. And eventually... That's what they did, but not before he delivered this famous address. We will dive into the text after this. So, the history is mostly familiar, but for those of you who need a refresher... America, since its founding, was wrestling with an idea. Yes, we want to self-govern. No, we don't believe in kings. And no, we don't believe in tyrants. And yes, we believe in the people as the source of sovereignty instead. Except, how can a devotion to liberty coexist with an institution where human beings own other human beings as property? It's the most extreme form of anti-liberty you can imagine. How can you say we are justified in expunging a tyrant when all over the country you have 
built-in tyrants who own other people, who can divide their families, who can treat them with violence, who can make them live in fear, who can steal from them the fruits of their labor. It was bitterly argued about in the beginning of the country, of the nation, and continued for decades. The South especially said, this is our economy. You'll destroy it if you get rid of slaves. And a lot of Northerners who also made money out of the deal looked the other way, and a lot of arguments arose. It's the natural order. It's God's will. It's in the Bible. The African race can't self-govern. They're being taken care of lovingly because property owners won't damage their own property, and so on. Argument after argument. And meanwhile, anti-slavery forces argued over where to draw the lines and how to draw them. What do we do about this? Do we end it now? Can we, can we put it on a path to ending it? How do we, how do we stop it from spreading? But how? How do we do that? How do we, how do we enact this policy? Abraham Lincoln was born in 1809, just a couple of decades into this battle. I mean, slavery had existed for centuries in the Americas, of course. It had a much longer history. But in terms of America as the nation that had declared itself on the side of liberty and justice for all, and yet knowing that neither of those things were true in any real sense— there was not liberty for all. There was not justice for all. This was a raw and open wound at the time that Lincoln was born. Thomas Jefferson, the greatest example of this divide, he was, he was on this issue, a house divided all unto himself. Thomas Jefferson was the president when Lincoln was born. He didn't die until Lincoln was 17 years old. Sometimes we forget just how much compression and overlap there is in history. Jefferson could easily have been Lincoln's grandfather. That's how close these generations are. If you think about changing the minds of your own father or grandfather, that generation of people where you know how they think, you know what they'll accept, you know what they base their worldviews on, you know what they've handed down to you, this is what we're talking about here. This is what Lincoln was facing. It's his father and his grandfather. And so... For Lincoln, who was born into a slaveholding state, whose relatives owned slaves, and who married a woman from a slaveholding family, and whose own parents were against slavery, but mostly because, mostly for economic reasons, it was hard to be an independent farmer, as his father was, and compete with the great plantations, great meaning large plantations. It was easy for Lincoln to see that slavery was wrong. Even so, even in spite of being around all of this slave-holding, I'm naturally anti-slavery. He said, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I can't remember ever not feeling that way. That was the easy part. As simple for him and as self-evident as one of Euclid's proofs. Euclid was one of Lincoln's favorites. Writers, along with Shakespeare and the King James Bible and Pilgrim's Progress and a few other works, Aesop's Fables, Robinson Crusoe. That's the easy part for him. Slavery is wrong. The harder part was to reconcile 
that truth with a constitution that endorsed slavery, enshrined it even implicitly. And Lincoln had a respect for laws and courts and justice, and those also endorsed it, condoned it, affirmed it. If you're devoted to democracy and people are voting for slavery, what do you do? You're against slavery. That's point A. But how do you get to point B, where it's abolished legally? And how do you get to point C, where there's true equality and justice for all? All people. Lincoln, who knew how deeply rooted prejudice was, did not even have a clear idea of what point C should look like. Early in his career, he thought, well, black people were brought here against their will. Maybe they should be given the chance to go back to Africa. Maybe that would be happier for everyone. His views evolved on that. But when the war began, he still didn't know what point C should be. He was trying to get to point B. The abolishment. He issued the Emancipation Proclamation, declaring that slaves were free. But this sat uneasily with him because it was a wartime power that he had seized to make such a proclamation. It was just a presidential proclamation. Did not have the force that a congressional act would have had, let alone a constitutional amendment. There was a contradiction there that troubled the lawyer in him. He had essentially said, these states have rebelled, they are treasonous, and therefore their property is fair game for us to seize. They consider slaves their property, and so we shall seize it. But what about after the war? A judge might look at that and say, well, first of all, a presidential proclamation does not have the force of a law approved by Congress, let alone the Constitution which does seem to endorse slavery. It didn't end it, anyway. And a wartime act loses its force when the war is over. That's another problem. A problem that would need to be faced. And it was faced with the passage of the 13th Amendment, putting the Constitution on firmer ground than the Emancipation Proclamation could ever have done. The Gettysburg Address was in the middle of these two things. Lincoln had emancipated the slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation, but he knew that it was potentially undoable in the future. A constitutional amendment was bedrock. The house he'd constructed and the one he was living in when he delivered the Gettysburg Address was built on sand. So that's consideration number one for the Gettysburg Address. Point B, the abolition of slavery is still a work in progress. Actually, let's not call that consideration number one. I've got a little scheme here. Four considerations. Let's say consideration number one is that the war is ongoing and it asks a lot of the public. The North. Kids are dying. It's expensive and it hasn't always gone that well at the time of the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln has concerns that he has to motivate the public to stay committed to the war. Consideration number two is that he feels deeply responsible for the deaths of the soldiers who have made this sacrifice. That's the ostensible purpose of the speech. And he's far too great of a human being to ignore 
that altogether or to minimize that part of it. He's not a psychopath. The deaths weighed on him, and Gettysburg had been an especially bloody battle. Consideration number three, let's say, is our point that abolition was a work in progress. And it that that actually that consideration flows out of consideration numbers one and two. What is this war about? He's clarified with the Emancipation Proclamation that it's about slavery. It always was, but in case anyone was confused about whether it was about preserving the Union, for example, the Emancipation Proclamation has clarified that debate. It's about ending slavery. That's what this war is about. So consideration number three is this. Why does America have to fight itself? When did this begin? Because slavery has always been here, so why can't it just be part of America? That's what the critics might ask. What makes war necessary? Why now? What are these soldiers dying for? Consideration number four is what I referred to earlier as point C. After the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln stopped speculating about what to do after slaves were freed. Stopped thinking that maybe former slaves would be happier if they could be returned to Africa. He had met more black people by now. I think he had come to realize that they were Americans living in America, that this was their home. For people born on this soil, raised here, speaking the language here, there wasn't really a version of the future where they would welcome the prospect of going to some place they had never been. There wasn't going to be some magical solution some paradise. And furthermore, they shouldn't need to feel that way. And America shouldn't want them to feel that way because the Gettysburg Address pivots. That's its genius. It says, this is who we are. This is who we've always been as a nation. And this is what that means. So the text itself, it begins famously four score and seven years ago, a nice grand way of saying 87 the number. The musicality of the phrase is there. The weight. Four score and seven years ago. It's like saying once upon a time or cera una volta, as the Italians do. Think of the alternative. 87. Sounds like something a bean counter might say. Sounds a little weak. Four score and seven years ago sounds like something a historian might reach for. But also, let's not lose sight of the fact that that number is hugely important. 87. Because four score and seven doesn't reach back to the Constitution, which was three score and something I got. Three score and and 14, I guess, something like that. The problem with the Constitution is that it tacitly endorses slavery. It's not explicit but it's implicit enough that judges interpreting laws have to acknowledge that those almighty founders did not end this issue. They punted. They kicked the can down the road. They let slavery exist in this great and shiny new nation that they were putting together. So, Lincoln, with his four score and seven, he leapfrogs the Constitution. Four score and seven. That's not 1789 when the Constitution was ratified. That's 
1776. And that is the Declaration of Independence. That's where the better angel of Thomas Jefferson's persona was whispering in his ear as he held the quill. That's the one that said, hey, if you're going to throw over the king, you can't say all landowners or educate, uh, all educated people or all white people are created equal. You have to say all people, or as he said, all men. We hold these truths to be self-evident, like Euclid. Self-evident, a Euclidean phrase, all men are created equal. Lincoln's first words in the Gettysburg Address, therefore, hearken back to that document. Before the politicians started hashing out their compromises, which baked slavery into the Constitution, there was the moment of conception of this nation, the casting aside of the king. This was where the nation began, Lincoln says. It was conceived here. Conceived is such a perfect word. We use it in the sense of initiating, like the moment life begins, a baby is conceived, not yet born. Soon as a baby is born, they're imperfect. We're all sinners, we're all flawed. But before that even, conceived, we also can use it to mean imagined, invented, mentally, dreamed of, designed, the Big Bang moment before the universe begins to expand. And here, this nation was, says Lincoln, was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Boom. Lincoln says it's right there in the text. It's not consistent with reality. It's not actual. He's acknowledging that. You look at the history of America and you say there's precedent for slavery. It existed. And Lincoln says, yes, but look at the words in our Big Bang moment. Conceived in liberty. That's the America that was imagined at the very beginning dedicated to the proposition, not the reality, wasn't describing the reality of what existed, but it was dedicated to a proposition, to an aspiration, to the idea, the concept, the principle, the self-evident truth that all men are created equal. We have the first of our 10 sentences, and it's breathtakingly clear, dramatic, concise, powerful, sonorous, a thunderclap. This guy, Lincoln, what a guy. he was a master with words, an absolute master. Here's the sentence. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. End quote. Who cares that they own slaves, says Lincoln. If you read between the lines here, they believed in liberty for the nation. Slavery was, anti, was and is antithetical to that, and they believed in equality for all men. It's in the text. The next four sentences are... This is familiar to us now, of course, because in part because Lincoln has made it so... Uh, apparent with this Gettysburg Address. This is something he's reminding his fellow Americans of when he's delivering this speech. 
Think about where how we started the Declaration of Independence, if you haven't looked at it lately. Maybe you've been busy. I'm imagining him saying this to his fellow Americans. Maybe you've been busy. Maybe you're not a lawyer. Maybe you're maybe you didn't learn this in school. Let me remind you of what happened 87 years ago when we cast aside the king. Okay, the next four sentences of the Gettysburg Address are setting us up for the pivot. Remember I said there were four considerations. Number one, the war is ongoing and needs the support of the public. Sons are dying, and we don't want them to have died in vain. That's number two. Number three, the cause is the abolition of slavery, which is still a work in progress. And we do not know what the country will look like after slavery has been abolished. That's the four considerations. So the next four sentences really address the first two considerations. This is a war, and what is this war about? People are dying. What are they dying for? That's the ostensible purpose of the speech. This is about them and their sacrifice. Let's not taint it too much with politics. We're not opportunists. Or in Lincoln's words, quote, Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. You can feel in that last sentence that a but is coming, and that is the next word, in fact. But let's look at these four sentences. They're remarkable for what they leave out. No whining or finger-pointing. This isn't about the evil villains in the South and what they've done. This isn't about propaganda. It isn't about their bigotry or their warmongering or them as rebels or traitors. It's about the country trying to move forward to atone for the original sin of slavery to redeem itself. It's about a nation that was born with a horrible schism between its words and its deeds, with liberty as its principle, but lack of liberty on its plantations and in its drawing rooms and kitchens and so on too. This was a deeper infection than something just far away. The tentacles of white supremacy had a stranglehold on hearts and minds and wallets all over the country. Lincoln's task was not easy. If he was going to accuse people, the fingers, let's just say if he were going to finger point, there wouldn't be enough fingers on his hand. He'd need a million hands. And he has respect for these soldiers. This is where we get into the world of Pericles and his funeral oration. Gore Vidal and Gary Wills have pointed this out famously. But if you've read your Thucydides, you'll see the same thing for yourself. Pericles was doing something very similar when he was praising the soldiers of Athens. He was speaking to praise and honor the dead. And he does so. And he says, why have they died for us? for our nation, for our way of life. It's not just for territory or treasure. It's for principle. Pericles also begins with a nod to the ancestors, much as Lincoln began with our fathers, which, by the way, sounds a lot like 
our Father who art in heaven, right? Lincoln knew what he was doing when he chose words. The references or rhymes or allusions to the Bible or Shakespeare or common prayers or the founding documents, when a phrase worked and would land, he used it. Every sentence in here is like that. In these four sentences, sentences two through five of the Gettysburg Address, he changes speeds, giving us some short sentences, mixing things up. And as I mentioned, he's getting us to look big to think big, to think broad. So there's a nod to the ancestors, which Pericles specifically says is right and fitting. It's just and proper that they should have the first mention, Pericles says. Lincoln follows that. They've gone before. They've gone now. They're gone now. We owe them respect. They too made sacrifices. And then the shift to why we're fighting this war. Pericles did the same thing. If the boys or young men had died for a mistake or for some unknown reason, some whim on the part of some dictator, some king or congress or president for that matter, then their deaths would be tragic and unspeakably horrific. A waste. Those who Ask them to die would be taking away the nobility of their cause. Their deaths would be not just tragic, but pointless. Their courage and nobility wasted their sacrifice for naught. And Pericles assures his audience, that's not the case here. These soldiers died for Athens. And look who we are, we Athenians. We have a commitment to a cause worth dying for. We are on the side of equal justice in our laws. And then Pericles, in his funeral, funeral oration, makes the move that Lincoln does, too. This is the pivot that brings together all four of these considerations that I mentioned above. Lincoln says, our work is not done. We owe it to these soldiers to make their sacrifice worthwhile. And what cause did they die for? What cause is worth the blood that has been shed on this battlefield? not the taking of a field or the repelling of the rebel forces back across the Potomac. No, not just that. These boys died for a cause. These men, maybe I should say, although I think of them as boys, teenagers, a lot of them. They died for the nation that began as a project dedicated to liberty, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. That's what they died for. Abolition of slavery is not just a political position. It's part of it. It's part of what they died for. It's central to it. It's the continuation of this mission that we started at the beginning. This nation began in 1776, but has not yet fulfilled. It's a way of uniting the past, the present, and the future all in one, and to not only do so with reverence for the dead, but to use their sacrifice as the ennobling motivator of the future, of what we do in the future. These soldiers did not die in vain, he says. Their cause was noble and worthy and righteous, and now let us be noble and worthy and righteous so that we honor them in that way. That's the pivot. That's what's going to come in the next five sentences. 
So let's pause here for a moment, halfway through this brief address, to talk about the sound of the address, the rhythm, the prose. Robert Frost had a phrase for this. He wanted his poems to sound good, heard through a door. If you couldn't quite make out the meaning, the words themselves, he wanted the sound to nevertheless be mellifluous. Now, I don't think I can read this through a door, but maybe as I read, I guess I could try. I don't think that's going to work. As I read this, listen to the sound, not just the words, but the sound. I'll read the first five sentences and then we'll move on to the next five. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. Okay, that's the first five. Now, let's hear the remainder. Try to listen to the sound as well as the meaning, and then we'll talk about the meaning. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Okay. Can you hear that? How balanced it is, how the sentences rise and fall, how it builds to that final sentence? The final sentence is a crescendo, 78 words, by far the longest sentence of these 10. And it has the argument embedded in it that I mentioned before, that the soldiers will not have died in vain if we here highly resolve to have increased devotion to the cause to which they were devoted. And what is that cause? Again, he doesn't say to stop the border states from becoming slave states or to embed the Emancipation Proclamation in the 13th Amendment, or to to require that fugitive slaves who reach free states cannot be returned to the slave states, or any little, little by comparison. 
any specific law that might have been contemplated at the time. It's bigger. It's values. It's all about who we are as a people, we Americans. It coins a phrase, a new birth of freedom, a new birth of freedom. The last birth was impartial. It was flawed. It was a a rickety machine. It was weighed down by slavery. This birth of freedom will be new on firmer ground, more logical, more logically sound. Lincoln was a great logician. Remember that Euclid, he loved so much, he hated slavery, but it wasn't just because he believed it was uh, morally wrong. Lincoln also got there through logic. Here's what Lincoln said about slavery in 1854. This is absolutely Euclidean. He writes, If A can prove, however conclusively, that he may of right enslave B, why may not B snatch the same argument and prove equally that he may enslave A? You say, A is white and B is black. It is color, then. The lighter, having the right to enslave the darker, take care. By this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. You do not mean color exactly. You mean the whites are intellectually the superiors of the blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again. By this rule, you are to be the slave of the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But, say you, it is a question of interest, and if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. End quote. But Lincoln's problem was that as much as he knew that slavery was morally and logically wrong, he had to square this with democracy, with the documents, with the laws. If Lincoln believed in monarchy, if he had believed in monarchy, it would have been easier to convince the king to change his mind. But what if you believe in democracy and the people voted originally or are continuing to vote to propagate slavery? You can change people's minds, but how long do you wait for that to happen? And what if you win and are ready to end it finally? And what happens? The states secede and say, we won't be governed by you if this is your choice. We would rather govern ourselves. What if you have a majority of votes, but not the supermajority you might need to amend the Constitution? What if you ended slavery during the war, and then the war ends and some future president undoes what you did? What if the, what kind of consequence would that be? The freed slaves would be rounded up and returned to their owners? New slaves imported? That's the dilemma facing Lincoln. Democracy is rotten, or it can produce rotten results when the people are rotten, or when they're misguided, when they're selfish, when they're distort, when their thinking is distorted, when they're not as logical or as moral as Lincoln himself was. So Lincoln says, let's be better. That's Lincoln's call to action. 
He puts it right there in the final words of the Gettysburg Address. We have a poor power to add or detract. That's a beautiful phrase, by the way. Our poor power. It's strong and humble all at once. We can't add or detract to the conduct and devotion of the soldiers here. They struggled and died consecrating the ground more than we can ever do. We can't erase that. We're not worthy of erasing it. But he uses the word here again and again in this address. He uses it six times in the last three sentences. Here. Now, this is our launching pad, our moment. This is the present. Let's not forget the men who died here. And let us be resolved, starting now, starting here, while we're in this mood of reverence and regret and reflection, to be better, to have a renewed sense of purpose, to aim toward our new birth of freedom. And then he wraps it up with his new birth of freedom, tied into the commitment to democracy, government of the people, by the people, for the people. That's Lincoln's phrase, by the way. He had predecessors in that idea. People have cited some examples of people who were kind of close to that, who talked about democracy being by the people and that it was for the people. And some of them said it was of the people, but none of them distilled it into that formulation. They took 50 words to say what Lincoln says in 10. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. Lincoln knew, like good poets know, that leaving things out can be more powerful than putting them in. You don't have to over-explain it. Look at political slogans that are effective. Keep hope alive. Yes, we can. Well, what? hope for what? Yes, we can do what? But you know what they mean. And you can also think yourself into what is meant. There's nothing there to get in your way. With liberty and justice for all is another phrase like that. For all. Not all with an asterisk. Not all X or all Y. Not all except all. Now, a Southerner, or let's say a Confederate of the day, might have said, yes, we want government of the people, by the people, for the people too. We want to vote and govern ourselves, and we choose slavery. And that's where Lincoln is saying, it can't be that way. Logically, you can't do that. You can't have a government of the people, by the people, for the people, and only include some people and not others. We need a new birth in which that's clear and in which that's actual, not just something we say on paper. We need this new birth based on logic and humanity and living up to the better angels of our nature, so this nation shall not perish. That's how he ends. Soldiers perish. Human beings perish. We all do. Nations can live. Let's hope. Let's hope they do not perish if we work. If we put ourselves on better footing if we live up to our ideals. The nation that was began and which these soldiers died for shall not perish. 272 words that went by so fast. The photographer of the day of the battlefield, the cemetery was still fumbling with his equipment. 
didn't get the picture taken. The only photo of Lincoln we have from that day is one of him standing in the crowd, almost anonymous. He's just one of many standing there. There are a couple of myths about the Gettysburg Address. One is that he scrawled it on the back of an envelope, which isn't actually true. We have some drafts of it where he was writing on paper. The other is that nobody could hear him, which might be true, but doesn't really matter. It's a little funny that that Edward Everett spoke thunderously for two hours from memory and Lincoln put on his reading glasses to deliver his remarks. And he was ill and and his... And yet his is the address that resounded throughout the world. Everett's is only remembered now in contrast to the Gettysburg Address. But it doesn't matter if the thousands of people who were there were able to hear Lincoln or not, because the address was immediately published in newspapers. And it was recognized as something to read and reread and savor and trust. It was the sort of thing that Americans would memorize. If you read it a handful of times, you already have half the phrases bouncing around in your mind anyway, like a catchy song or a Shakespearean sonnet. It's easy to memorize this Gettysburg Address. It's referenced everywhere. You'll hear snatches of it everywhere. Martin Luther King Jr. began his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, by the way, with the phrase, five score years ago. France used the phrase, government of the people, by the people, and for the people, in their constitution. The address has been read, the Gettysburg Address has been read and admired and cited by advocates of democracy around the world ever since it was published. What does it mean for us today? So... Let's go back to my night in the guest house in Perugia with the critic from New Zealand. I don't mean to pick on New Zealand, by the way. His views were valid, and they could have come from any country. And I met plenty of others who thought like him, who were somewhere between wary of America and critical of America or resentful of America or completely hostile to it. We were New York City in those days, the second country for many, the one you couldn't ignore, and maybe for some... That was a positive thing, and maybe for some, that bred resentment. I get it. In Italy, I had a grandfather hug me once with tears in his eyes because I reminded him of a World War II American who was kind to him when the American soldiers came through, liberating his city and ending the misery of his childhood, the miserable stretch that he had suffered during the war. And yet... Canadians used to put maple leaf flags on their backpacks to make sure people didn't confuse them for Americans. Americans, you know this is true. If we had a foreign country with a military base on our soil, that's all we would talk about. It would be a huge source of debate. Why are they here? What does it mean? Should they stay or go? Do we like who we are with them here? Do we like them? Period. And here's America in 2022 with something like 800 military bases around the world in 70-plus countries. Our movies go everywhere, our television, our products, our people. We're the 500-pound guerrilla nation in just about every country's corner. And it's natural for them to ask, why? And 
is this good? And what is our argument, Americans? Because I think most countries, at least in the 1990s, when I was doing most of my traveling abroad, most people would say, hey, we get it. We don't make the rules. We deal with reality. There once was the Soviet Union and the United States, and now it's the United States. You're the world's superpower. You're the cop on the beat. You walk around with this swagger, and it's not something you or I are going to change anytime soon. How do I feel about it? I'm imagining this in other people's minds. How do I feel about that? About you being America and about America being America in the world? Well, okay. Again, this is my imagining of someone else. I like your pop culture, but I don't want junk jammed down my throat. So can we have some prints, maybe some Levi's, but not every single dumb TV show about teenagers in California going to prom or rich kids in New York City. Can we watch Jaws and Jurassic Park, but also have a few movies of our own in the theaters? We like hosting you and we really like your tourist dollars, but can you treat us with respect when you're here, please? And we admire your universities and your scientists Are you preserving those, or are the politicians messing those things up? And I like that you Americans are on the side of freedom and democracy, or at least you say so. Is that actually what you're doing? Or do those celebrated, those vaunted words, do they ring hollow? Do you think democracy is for thee and not for me, and is it really... For all of thee in America, I admire your prosperity, but I'm wary of your greed. Is it true, America, that there's a huge income disparity in your country? How are the poorest people treated? And I like that you're committed to immigrants and and pluralism and freedom of religion and getting along in one big, crazy, but mostly happy family, or at least you say you are. How's the racism going these days, America? Cooling off or heating up? That's the dialogue between the rest of the world and America. With liberty and justice for all. Sounds great. Are those words true? We see that women can vote. We see that black people can vote. And yet we also see pictures of long lines of people waiting to vote. Not long ago, there were miscegenation laws, black people and white people in love who were not allowed to marry one another. We saw those pictures of dogs being turned on human beings. How are you doing there, America? Your government of the people, by the people, for the people, sounds grand. Who are the people? Is it the elites, the wealthy, White people, voting, the courts, the schools, the housing, the opportunities. Are those for certain people only? Or are they for the people? Full stop. It's the question at the heart of the Gettysburg Address. The one that other countries ask of America, but more importantly, the one America asks itself and needs to Can we pull this off? Are we living up to those words 
12 score after the Declaration of Independence, 8 score after the Gettysburg Address. Are we the America we want to be? Are we climbing the hill with our heads held high, our faces shining in the light that rains down from the heavens, proud of the promises we've made and the devotion to our principles, and ready to be as good as those promises? Or are we a bunch of greedy, cynical bastards, hunched over and hidden, ashamed, blaming others, resentful of our own ideals, and our hypocrisy buried in tribalism, snarling, rebellious? Do we want to be better, or are we content to be bitter? Where we stand in the world and where we stand in our own self-conception depends on the answer. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode. My thanks to Abraham Lincoln. My goodness, what a writer he was. What a human being. I'm sorry if he's not your cup of tea. He's mine. And... My thanks also to the good people of Chile. I thank you from the bottom of my heart, and I wish you all the best. I'm staggered by the benevolence of your support and staggered by the listeners we have in so many kitchens and cars and other locations around the world. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>